I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2, please, for our public reading of the Word this morning. Our message this morning is particularly geared as a year-end message, a time to evaluate and think about the past year briefly, but then to anticipate what God has for us and how to serve as a faithful servant in the year ahead. We'll be using briefly in our message this morning as an illustration this passage in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 13 to the end of the chapter. It's entitled in my Bible, this section is, The Escape to Egypt. As we consider the events that transpired in the life of our Lord Jesus and Joseph and Mary following the birth of the Lord. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Follow along as I read, please. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt. I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. An interesting few days and months probably in the life of our Lord Jesus and Mary and Joseph. May the Lord bless the reading of the word to us. And so, Father, we humble our hearts now to receive your word. Thank you for the great truths of Christmas that we've been reflecting upon these past weeks and 
What a good way to bring our year to a close of being focused on the Lord Jesus and the importance of worshiping Him, living for Him, and serving Him. Father, strengthen us now as we listen together to what Your Word has to say to us. Thank You, Lord, for the relevance of Your Word, how it never grows old, it never gets out of date, and we never have a day where we don't need Your Word. And so strengthen us and encourage us today, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not sure it's a true story, but I am told that some time ago, scientists from NASA built a gun that was designed to launch dead chickens at the windshields of airliners and military jets and the space shuttle, all traveling at maximum velocity. The idea is to simulate the frequent incidents of collisions with airborne fowl to test the strength of these windshields. British engineers heard about the gun and were eager to test it on the windshields of their new high-speed trains that they had developed. Arrangements were made and the gun was sent to the British engineers. When the gun was fired, the engineers stood shocked as the chicken hurtled out of the barrel crashed into the shatterproof shield windshield, smashing it to smithereens, blasting through the control console, snapping the engineer's backrest in two, and embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin like an arrow shot from a bow. The horrified Britons sent NASA the disastrous results of the experiment, along with the designs of the windshield, and asked the U.S. scientists for suggestions. NASA responded with a one-line memo. Thaw the chicken. (laughs) Well, we laugh, but um, I wonder as we glance back over 2008, what hit your windshield this year? What is it that hit your windshield this year, and how did it take it? A few little bugs and a few little smacks, or did your windshield shatter on you this year as you traveled through another year? And as we look ahead, we know that we're going to take some hits, aren't we? We don't know what's coming, and isn't God good to just give us this minute? And as I've repeated often, Yogi Berra's great saying that predictions are hard to make, especially about the future. We don't know what the next year is going to hold, do we? You know, I don't think it pays to spend a lot of time looking back. The Apostle Paul in Philippians said, didn't he? Putting those things which are behind, I press onward to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. There are some good examples in the word, though, of taking time to evaluate, to learn the lessons of the past, and we would be foolish not to stop, wouldn't we, on our schedule and say, okay, what has, gone, what has God done in our lives this year? How did we take it? And if our Lord Jesus was to enter this morning and walk among us and look at us and evaluate our lives, I wonder among us who he would be able to point from the results of 2008 and say, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You really did well this year. Don't you long to hear that? Don't you long to be that kind of steady, eddy, faithful Christian that when the frozen chickens hit the windshield and everything goes to smithereens, you just keep on going? For the Lord to look at us and say, you've been doing so well. And there's been adversity. There's been difficult days. There's been sleepless nights. There's been unaccepted, unexpected difficulties, even sin struggles. Keep going. Keep going. Be faithful. I was reminded as I was thinking through the groundwork of getting into our message this morning of Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10, where the writer of Proverbs said, If you falter in times of trouble, how weak is your strength? I think it's pretty normal to falter in times of trouble, don't you? You know, I think that the reality is that we need to expect the proverbial frozen chicken to hit our windshield. God expects his people to keep going in faithfulness. Don't be weak. Be strong in the power of his might. Be courageous. Be faithful. I had taken a line in my Bible with a pen and drawn from Proverbs 24.10, if you falter in times of trouble, how weak is your strength, and drawn it down and connected it to the first part of Proverbs 24, verse 16, where it says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises up again. This morning, I want us to this final Sunday of the old year, and as we look with anticipation to a new year, I want us to evaluate ourselves, and you need to make application as we process this message. Have you been faithful in 2008? And what about 2009? Are you entering the year with a determination to be what God wants you to be and to serve in faithfulness? I think that Matthew chapter 2, where we read scripture this morning, is an excellent launching point for our message today. When you stop and think about what was happening here in the chronology and the life and times of our Lord Jesus and in his family with Joseph and Mary, I mean, think about it. It's titled, as I said, Escape to Egypt, but look what was going on. Timeline-wise, the Magi had left. Herod, of course, was looking for this king. He was a paranoid, corrupt, egotistical, probably insane political leader that in the, of that day. There were numerous Herods. This Herod that was ruling at the time of our Lord Jesus, I don't know if I t- said this yet this Christmas season, historians tell us that he was so crazy and he was such an egotistical but wicked man that he was hated and feared. He, he's the one who slaughtered parts of his family and some of his wives because he was afraid of a coup. But it's said that he rounded up some of the leading officials in the community, lawyers and doctors and surgeons and scholars and philosophers, and he gathered them up and he had them imprisoned when he knew he was going to die because on the day that he died, he had given the orders that all of these elites be slaughtered so that he could ensure that there would be weeping and wailing and mourning on the day of his death. I understand that 
though they were locked up, that after he died, they were released and that they did not follow through with his command. That's the kind of guy you're dealing with here. And now Joseph, a young father, the Magi have left. And so we know that this was probably a year or more, 18 months, maybe more. And they, we know from the passage before this that they, the Magi went to a house Joseph and Mary evidently had rented or now owned a house. They were trying to get on with their lives. Think about the major interruption they had already had. And now one night, Joseph receives word. Joseph, Joseph, wake up. This is the Lord speaking to you. Joseph, you need to go now. They're going to kill your baby. Put that in perspective, would you? I don't know if that's happened to you or not. It never happened to me. I think that it's possible that it happened. We have horrible stories, even this past week, don't we, of of domestic um, problems that exploded and Satan used anger where this fellow out west in his Santa Claus outfit goes to his former family and slaughters them. And there are people who have been through horrible situations and maybe you can relate to this feeling. But to me, that's a pretty extreme, you might say, frozen chicken hitting the windshield. Somebody wants to kill your baby. Don't call the police. Get out of here. And imagine that moment. It evidently happened in the middle of the night where Joseph had to turn in his bed and shake Mary and say, Mary, wake up. We have to go. We have to go now. Get some clothes, get some food, get as little as possible. We must go now quietly. I, I consider that a pretty, a pretty major interruption. It's unplanned. It's unexpected. It's inconvenient. It's disruptive. It's frightening. It's uncertain. It's unpredictable. It's a frozen chicken on the windshield, isn't it? And, and what we have, though, is we have God honoring a faithful servant, don't we? And Joseph did exactly what the Lord said. Did you see how many times in there, at least three times in that passage, he received a word from the Lord through dreams? I mean, if I was Joseph, I'd get to where I stayed awake at night. <laughs> Lord, not again tonight. More information Another misdirection. Lord, what are you bringing into my life at this time? Lord, I don't want my life to be like this. I have news for you. We don't get to pick and choose what tomorrow holds. Our job is just to be faithful. Our job is to just get up and live for Jesus in 2009. And when the difficult days come, to continue to be faithful and to watch what God is going to do. Though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises up again. If you falter in difficult times, how weak is your strength? Keep your eyes on the Lord, he says. Well, we do have an account in Scripture where Jesus looked at a man, so to speak, and he said, you have been a good and a faithful servant. I want us to look at that passage this morning in our year-end message. It's Matthew chapter 25, and I invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. Matthew chapter 25, please. 
We'll begin with verse 14. It's a relatively familiar passage of Scripture. We know it as the parable of the talents. And we're not going to break this parable down. This parable has an incredible amount of information in it and actually uh, some even difficult parts to understand to it. Remember that parables, when Jesus taught on earth, he would sometimes use a story, wouldn't he? A practical, everyday information type concept to relate spiritual truth and spiritual reality. And we're all pretty good at that. We could take something that we can grasp right here that we all know about, and then, and the kingdom of heaven is like this. So it's an earthly story, we say, with a heavenly meaning. And one of the things you need to understand about parables is that as we understand them and interpret them, we should take them to have basically one primary meaning to them. You have to be careful about straining at a parallel on every point of the parable. Jesus told the story to make one main point. Now, there are points within the point sometimes, but the main point of this parable is basically this. It is that Jesus is coming back, and we don't know when, and when he returns, we need to be found faithful. Let's read the story. And what I want to do is I really want to just focus on the main faithful steward, the faithful servant, the one who produced for his master in the absence of his master, the one who could have gotten distracted, the one who could have gotten bogged down, he could have gotten sidetracked, he didn't make excuses, and he was found faithful upon his Lord's return. Matthew chapter 25, begin with verse 14. Again, speaking of the kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents. A talent was a weight of money worth significant money, depending on the money scale and where you're at, but it was a large sum of money. Entrusted, who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one who, with the two talents, gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things, with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, 
I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. And the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents, for everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a strong message in this parable. It's kind of interesting. By and large, it is a word to Israel who had received the talents of the gospel and had not produced with them. There would be a rejection in that sense. Some Bible students even use this parable to teach that there are levels of honor in heaven and in the kingdom to come. That some are given higher esteem than others, even in the future, based upon the productivity of our work on earth in honoring the Lord. That is not to say that that's what gets you into heaven. Let's make clear that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. It's not a work system. God loves us. Even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we accept this free gift of salvation by faith, believing that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, was buried, but he rose again, and then 40 days later ascended into heaven. He came to communicate God's love for us and restore the broken fellowship. And because he saved us, we don't have to work for him in the sense of an obligatory manner. We don't say, because of what Jesus did for me, what can I do to pay him back for all that he did for me? My friend, you can't pay him back. It's not a work system. It's about grace, but it is out of love and joy and enthusiasm for the gospel itself and to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, we serve him faithfully, joyfully. And we're here for a reason. We're worshipers of God, and our job is to round up more worshipers. And so we want to be faithful. Well, I don't know what you want to call this this morning. I entitled for the bulletin at press time our message today, uh, Glancing Backward but Living Forward. Because it's possible that you've really mucked it up this year. It's possible that 2008 might have been one of the worst years you've ever had. You might be going backwards. You might be able to chart on the chart of your life that 2008 was the all-time low in living for Jesus. Well, let me shake you out of your doldrums, and let me challenge you to forget it. It's in the past. Get it under the blood. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs says, whosoever confesses and forsaketh his sin will be forgiven. Listen, go forward. It pays to look in the rearview mirror to see what you backed into last year. But let's drive looking out the window. I had the great privilege of flying in Alaska in small plane in bush. For those of you who are airplane guys or gals, I flew a lot in a Cessna 206. And um, I was in a Cessna 206 with a, with a missionary pilot named Kenny Hughes one day. And I was actually working on my private pilot's license down in Beckley when I was in Bible college. 
I was up in Alaska working for an uncle who had an air taxi business, so he had a bunch of airplanes. And we were flying together one day, and we were in front. We were going from the Wasilla Big Lake Palmer area to uh, out by the mouth of the Yukon River, and we had to fly for about three and a half hours across Alaska and through the mountains. And uh, Kenny Hughes was letting me fly left-hand seat. I was the pilot that day. I didn't have a license, and it was a bigger plane than I was used to, and it was actually filled full of, I forget, three or four or five 55-gallon drums of gasoline for our motorboats out on the river. So it was a pretty uh, potent uh, uh, airplane full of juice. And I remember I had a map. I don't know if you've ever seen an airplane map before, but it's actually kind of a picture of the ground below you, and it's got kind of a, a topographical look to the map, and it's got landmarks and so forth. And I was flying left-hand seat, and we were going, and Kenny would tell me where to go, and he had the map on my lap, and he was trying to teach me some things, some practical experience. It was a great opportunity for a 20-year-old kid. And I'm flying along, and I kept doing this. I kept turning and looking out that there's a back window in the plains, and I kept looking back, trying to identify some lakes and some ridges and some land sites, looking out the back window. Finally, Kenny says, you got to quit looking out the back window, and you got to fly this plane forward. You've already been there. I was just trying to find myself on the map. Van, fly forward. Quit looking out the back window. Some of you need that message today. You've got to quit looking out the back window, and you've got to fly forward. And even though you've been faithless in the past, you've got to be faithful now from today on. Listen, the will of God for your life always starts right now, no matter what you've done in the past. And I want to look at this message as, yes, glancing backward but living forward. But I also jotted down a few other titles, maybe how to live as a faithful servant or living faithfully in uncertain times. I think what I've ended up with, if you want to jot notes, is maybe title your page, The Qualities of a Faithful Servant, based upon the number one pupil in our servant story here today, Matthew twenty-five fourteen. How was it that this guy was... A success. The guy with the five talents and the guy with the two talents lived faithfully. He received the commendation of his master while the guy who received the one talent, he blew it. He blew his opportunities. He didn't develop. He didn't move forward. He just kind of lived in the past with what he had. That was it. No vision for the future. No real concern to develop for the master. Quality number one for success as a faithful servant and how to be a faithful servant is this. Number one, we see in verse 14 that he embraced his identity. He embraced his identity. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 14. Again, I will, it will be like a man going on a journey. And in our parable, that would be the Lord Jesus who's gone on a long journey, but he's coming back. We don't know when who called his servants, that would be those who are followers of Jesus, he called his servants and entrusted his property to them. Do you notice what this man understood himself to be while his master was gone? I am a servant of my master. Innate and inane to the fact that I, and germane to the fact that I have a master means that I am a servant. 
In the Greek New Testament, the word that is translated servant here is a word that you may have heard before. It's called doulos. There's a couple different Greek words that represent servant or servanthood in the New Testament. One of them is, you can get where we got the English word from, diakonos. Does that ring a bell? Deacon. A deacon is a diakonos. It's a word for a servant. This word is doulos, and it has a little bit different meaning, even though we translate servant different ways. This word doulos is just the word for a common, ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill servant. Nobody special, no special task, just to carry out what the master said. I'm the master, you're my doulos. You do what I say. I want you to notice that I think that in the Christian life, like this guy in our story, that until we embrace the reality of who our master is and that we're just a doulas, we're just a servant, I think you'll find it very freeing. Okay, Lord, you're my master, and that means then that I'm your servant, and that means that you're in charge and I'm not, but I have been given these resources here, and my job is to make your stuff look good to serve you with my time and my talents and my resources. Do you remember the the day when Jesus and the disciples, I know you weren't there, but you remember in the Bible where it is, when Jesus was walking down a road with his disciples and he hears them bickering. Bunch of men, they get kind of cat fighting. You don't say, I don't do that. And probably shoving each other a little bit the way men will do. And Jesus asks a funny question. The one who created the world, who is omniscient and all-knowing, turns around and says, what are you talking about? You better be careful what you answer Jesus when he asks you a question like that, because he knows your thoughts, right? What are you talking about? He knew exactly what they were talking about, and he had a teachable moment on his hands. Do you remember what they were talking about? They were arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God when Jesus set up his throne and and overthrew Rome, the Roman rule. And what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20? Do you remember what he said? If you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be, what's the next word? The servant of all. Do you know that that will just free your spirit? It will free your attitude of the expectations of the people around you? Do you know when you don't get the raise you're expecting? Do you know when everybody else leaves and you're left to shut off the lights? Do you know what it is when everybody else has taken their day off and, and you don't get your day off and you want to mumble and grumble and you want to be unfaithful? If you really remember that you are a loss for the master, it's like, this is my job. My job is to pick up this junk. I'm no one special. It is my job to be the servant. You want to be found faithful next year? Embrace servanthood. Embrace your role as a doulos. Let the Lord elevate you later. Don't seek higher office. Seek servanthood. Don't do it to manipulate. That's no good either. Oh, our hearts are deceptive, aren't they? 
He embraced his identity. You want to know why when the master came back, he could look at this guy and say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's because he understood he was a servant and that was okay with him. There's my master. I'm the servant. What can I do for you? I've told you before about Matt White going to Africa with me a couple years ago. And he was quite taken with the African custom of how the pastors are honored there in the villages and in the community. And his, the men of the church would honor their pastor. The pastor wouldn't get up and move his chair. Three guys would jump up and want to move the chair for the pastor. And so Matt White took great delight in mimicking the Africans in, in doing that kind of stuff to me, opening the doors, picking up my briefcase, making sure, are you comfortable? Do you need a drink of water? And he was playing with me a little bit, but he meant it too. And he was trying to honor me, and he, he thought that was pretty neat. Just be a servant for the master. I'm nobody special. You're nobody special. We're just servants. Well done, my doulos. Don't you want to hear that from your master? Secondly, I want you to see that he readily accepted his responsibility. He accepted his responsibility. Look what his responsibility was. He called his servants and entrusted his property to them. This now brings on another dynamic, and it adds another word to what this guy is. Not only is he a do-loss servant, but now the master has given him specific property over which he is charged, and that makes him what we would call a steward. A steward. Someone who is not an owner, but someone who is just responsible for it, for the owner. It's even more than a servant. I can make some decisions. I am free to produce here. My master has given me this trust, and now I am the steward. We have a great picture of this in Genesis at the end of the book of Genesis, and we'll get to it eventually. It's a great story. Pretty soon, two weeks from today, Lord willing, maybe next Sunday, but two weeks from today for sure, Lord willing, we'll begin once again our Genesis series. But when we get there, there's a great story in the end of Genesis of Joseph. Remember Joseph? And how his brothers despised him because of his father's honor. And his father gave him the coat of many colors. And, um, and they sold him to the slave traders. And he ended up in Egypt. And then, he, and then the Lord honored him and took him up into Pharaoh's household. And he was a servant. And then he ended up being the steward of Pharaoh's household. And what's interesting about that is the, when, when it talks about how much Joseph served and oversaw the household of Pharaoh. Remember how it said there that Pharaoh didn't know anything about his household except what was on his dinner plate when he sat down to eat dinner. That's what a steward is. Somebody who takes the master's stuff and he just checks it out. You ask Pharaoh, Pharaoh, how much money you got in the checkbook? I have no idea. Ask Joseph. Pharaoh, how many rows of corn did you plant in your garden this spring? I have no idea. You have to check in with Joseph. He's my steward. You see, Pharaoh, do you need new shingles on your roof? I have no idea. You have to ask Joseph. He's in charge of the house. Pharaoh, what do you know about your house? I know that tonight I'm sitting here at my table and this is a pork chop and this is corn and this is mashed potatoes and gravy and I have sweet tea to drink. That's all I know. Why? Because I have a steward. He's doing the work. He's overseeing it. He's guarding it. He's taking care of it. You know, it'll change your life if you begin to see that every part of your life was given to you by God and that you are the steward of it. Your house. Is that your house? 
Say, no, I, my master gave me this house. I'm a steward of this house. My kids, are these your kids? No, the Lord gave me these kids, and I'm a steward of them. They belong to him. I'm the one that just has responsible to bring them up, to follow the master. Your car. It's my car. What do you mean? It's my car. It's not your car. God gave it to you. It's the master's car. Everything about you, if you begin to see it as owned by God and that you're the steward, it's very freeing as well. And it'll change your whole perspective on your goals and your objectives and why you do what you do. I remember hearing a story from a friend of mine. I think I can say his name. Pastor Kurt Lowry at Independent Bible Church grew up at Hagerstown Bible Church. His mom and dad, Bill and B. Lowry, the finest people that have ever walked on the face of the earth, basically. Wonderful servants of the Lord. I stopped by one time to visit at their home in Hagerstown not long before B. went to be with the Lord because of cancer. And she was in the back bedroom on the bed. She's still um, a beautiful lady and beautiful countenance, even though she knew time was short. And in that context, we had a a good conversation, and Bill was talking about how good the Lord had been to them. I don't know how long they'd been married, at least 50 years then, and and, um, this has been just a few years ago. Bill is still living, sweet gentleman in his 80s. And I remember what Bill said something. He was talking about how the Lord had blessed them and about how they had viewed their lives and how everything they had done, they had seen as the Lord as their master and that they were stewards. And he looked at me, and this is the honest truth, and he said, have you ever heard of a guy named Sam Erickson? (laughs) I said, I laughed. I literally laughed out loud. I said, don't you know, everybody knows Sam Erickson. He said, in all seriousness, he said, One time back in, and he said the date, he knew the date, in the 80s, 20, 25 years ago, he said Sam Erickson came to our church at Hagerstown Bible Church, and he talked about God being the owner and us being the stewards. And remember Sam's phrase that he's used many times, if you've been around Sam, he said, never owner, always steward. Never owner, always the steward. And Bill said, that message touched my life. And we have lived our lives like that for all these years. And God has just blessed us. And we talked about the testimony of God's blessing on their lives. What was it? He accepted his responsibility that God is giving you these resources in your life. Don't you ever think it's yours. It's God's. Now you're the steward. That's what this guy in the story did. I am a steward. I'm responsible to produce You ever borrow something off of someone and realize how important it was to take care of it where in your own life, like if you borrow something, it's not a good idea to borrow like a, um, it seems like anytime you borrow something that has a motor on it, the motor's going to break when you borrow it, right? Like a chainsaw or um, uh, something like that, you know, you borrow a cement mixer off of somebody and then the hitch breaks off the back of your truck and it rolls in the ditch like, but if, if you're like me even a little bit, you're You take care of your stuff, but you don't take care of it that well, like not as well as your wife would like to see you take care of it. Keep everything running, keep it all going, keep it greased up, it's all good and to go. But if I borrow something of yours, man, I polish that thing, I take care of it, I really watch out for it. 
Why? It's not mine. I'm going to have to give an accounting to you. I'm going to have to give it back to you. That's how we need to live our lives. This is my master's world. This is my master's sphere. And I'm the one that's the steward. And I've got to keep everything polished up for him. It'll change your whole perspective. Let's move on. Not only did he embrace his identity as a servant and accept his responsibility as a steward, but he functioned up to capacity. Did you notice that? He functioned up to capacity. I want you to notice that they were equally accountable to the master, these three guys, the five talents, the two talents, and the one talent. They were equally accountable, but they were not equally responsible. Think about it. The guy with five talents had a greater weight of responsibility on him than the guy with one talent, didn't he? But did you notice how God or the master gave out the talents? Did you notice the word there? Look in verse uh, 15. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his, what's the next word? Ability. The master knew exactly what he was doing. And so though they were equally accountable to the master, there was, it was a level playing field. The master's going to come back. We're all accountable to him. They did not all have the same responsibility while the master was gone. There was greater and lesser and so forth. But based upon that activity, there was reward, wasn't there? And even greater responsibility given on. And I think it's important to see that this guy functioned up to his capacity as a five-talent guy. Way back in Bible college, I heard a lot of messages, three a week for five years. I was in Bible college for five years, and I heard three messages a week in chapel. I remember one of them. I probably remember two or three, but I remember this one in particular, and I think about it. It was Jim Efaw from Cross Lanes Bible Church. He's out in Colorado now. And he talked about being effective in your life and making sure that at whatever capacity God raised you up to fire on all cylinders, and that's maybe why it clicked in my mind, but he used the illustration of cars, a car engine. And he looked at us in the chapel of young people, and he said, if you're an eight-cylinder, you better be firing on all eight. And if you're a six-cylinder, you better be firing on all six. And if you're a four-cylinder, you better be firing on all four. You see, if you're a four-cylinder, God doesn't expect you to be an eight-cylinder but he expects every cylinder to be firing and for you to produce. Live up to your capacity. And you know, I think that the Spirit of God has a way of bringing conviction, doesn't he? And some of us will look in the rearview mirror of 2008 and we'll say, you know what? I've really been living way below my potential. I have really functioned below capacity. I'm an eight-cylinder, six-cylinder, four-cylinder, but I'm functioning like my old craftsman lawnmower one-cylinder. Something's got to change. The master's coming back, and in fact, that motivates us. Notice number four, he recognized limits to the opportunity. He recognized the limits to the opportunity. Notice what it says. The man who received five talents went at once. He put them to work, and he produced five more. Now notice verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned. He knew the master was coming and he knew he had X number of days. He didn't know how many days, but he knew it was not unlimited. He knew that life had limited capacity and that he better be about the master's business. 
I heard my dad say for years how the older you get, the faster time goes by. Now I'm saying it. Janet and I were out last night, and we had dropped Jonathan off in Hedgesville at Mamaw's, and we were coming home, and we cut through Martinsburg and cut on Moeller Avenue there, and we were coming past where we used to live on the left-hand side there in a little development and for a number of years. And, and I said to her as we were driving by at about 11 o'clock last night, I said, I said, um, we used to always turn in right here. And she said to me, can you believe that we are living in our house now as long, I can't remember if said as long or longer than we lived there? Because it seemed like a pretty long time that we lived there. It was like seven or eight years. And it's our eighth winter in our new home. That's unbelievable. And I think this sometimes. No one will be around. And I'll walk out of this auditorium during the week or come, come for something or cut crossed here. And I'll walk out. And once in a while it'll occur to me, someday there will be a last time that Pastor Van will walk out of this auditorium. We don't have forever to do our work. We have, we have limits on the opportunities. Your neighbor might not live next to you forever. You see, Tim Russert moments happen, don't they? Where you go to work in the morning and you think you're going to be on the set and you think you're going to be all over the nation and all around the world and all on the internet that night and conversing and talking about the latest thing that's happening in the upcoming election and your forehead smacks the middle of your desk and it is over, baby. And time is up. You know, that ought to get us out of bed in the morning. I am not my own. I am a do-loss. I am a steward of what God has given me, and the time is limited. Now, there is a flip side of the coin. I don't want to be unreasonable. And in some ways, isn't it amazing how not in a hurry God is? And we do need to be intentional. And we do need to do the right things. But some of us need to wake up and say, what am I waiting for? I don't have, all, I don't have forever. Because secondly, uh, fifthly, he was motivated by the day of accountability. He was motivated by the day of accountability. The master came back and the master had a question. And the question was, what have you done with what I've given you? What you been doing? I certainly hope you haven't just wasted your time watching the Redskins. What's your life all about? There's a day of accountability. Now, let me make clear again that this is not about getting into heaven. This is not about our salvation. I just want so much to emphasize that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That God loved you, and even in your sinfulness, and you could not reach out to God even if you wanted to, but God called you to himself as he's calling all men unto himself. And there was a day when you grabbed white-knuckled onto whatever was around you, and one day you finally said, enough's enough, and you let go, and you said, you know what, Lord? You're right, I am a dirty, rotten sinner, and I do recognize that Jesus' blood cleanses me of all sin. And today I bow my head and my heart in your presence, and I want you to make me your child and wash me whiter than snow. And thank you for Jesus going to the cross to be sin for me, that I can enter into newness of life and enter into heaven. And that's all it takes to get into heaven, let me tell you. Believing that Jesus is the Christ, that he died on the cross for our sin, was buried, the third day rose again. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But the Bible clearly teaches that we're here for a reason, and that there is this master-steward issue, and that somehow there is an accounting. 
Let's look at two verses in closing. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Will you look at that with me quickly? Quickly, please. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4.13 Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom... What's the next phrase? We must give an account. You know, this is um, a little bit difficult to understand but clearly, God's word teaches that there's an expectation on believers in the Lord Christ. We're stewards, aren't we? First and foremost, we're to be stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's given us. You're not supposed to hide your lamp under a bushel. You're supposed to get the bushel basket off and let the light so shine before men that they may see what? That they may see your good works. And therefore glorify your Father who is in heaven. We have a responsibility to do good works. Not to get into heaven, but to be the doulos that we're supposed to be. To be the stewards. To function at our capacity. He's regenerated us and made us new in Christ for a reason. To call more worshipers unto himself. And we're to be stewards of everything about us. And there is one before whom we will stand and give an account. It's not going to keep you out of heaven. But I've often wondered if in Revelation chapter, I forget the chapter, in Revelation he says, and he'll wipe away every tear. It's towards the end of the book, isn't it? And he'll wipe away every tear. What do you mean? I'm in heaven. How's he going to wipe away? I didn't know there was tears in heaven. I don't know exactly what that means completely. But I wonder if at the Bema, and there's this accounting before my master, if I recognize, oh man, oh man, God blessed me and he gave me these resources and he gave me my mind and he gave me the gospel and he gave me this great church and he gave me, gave me these properties and he gave me everything and I didn't do anything with it for the kingdom. I did it all for myself or I did it all for whatever, but I missed the whole point. Yes, I'm in heaven, and yes, I'm going to enjoy heaven, and then God reaches over in his grace, the Lord Jesus does, and he'll wipe away every tear and make all things right. But somehow there's some kind of a reckoning, there's some kind of an acknowledging, isn't there, that there's a realization. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and with this we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is probably the clearest statement in the Bible about this bima. 2 Corinthians 5, look at verse 7 through 10. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. The Apostle Paul longed to be with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him. That would be the Lord Jesus. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, 4, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat. That's that beam I've been talking about. This judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I take that to be a believer's judgment. I take it to be about the works of a servant of Christ before the master as far as what he's given us to work with. And to whom much is given, much is required. This is not my entrance into heaven. This is some kind of a rewards-based system. And it's somewhat a mystery, but the Word of God gives us glimpses of this reality. 
does make sense too, doesn't it? When you look in the rearview mirror at 2008, what do you see? Oh, man. Listen, stop looking back now. Let's look forward. Let's fly forward. And let's be faithful servants of the Lord. Let God use you. You say, well, how do I do that, Pastor Van? Uh, Just two things. Number one, start praying about it. I I think that some people, they don't know how God wants to use them. Number one, just pray about it. Make that part of the forefront of your thinking. Lord, I want you to use me. Lord, I want to be your faithful doulos. Make that your prayer. And then number two, take some pressure off yourself. It's just a two-step process. Pray. And then number two, do what you like to do. Just be who you are. I looked out my office window yesterday and there was a guy in our church out here digging with a backhoe. I went out there to look at the hole when he was done and leaving. And I've, I've used a backhoe a little bit, but I'm sure no backhoe operator. We have a beautiful brick sign, Lord willing, that's going to start being laid. The Lord gives a little break in the weather here and Matt Jones is going to start laying block and brick. It's going to be a beautiful brick sign to anchor the corner of our property finally. Get rid of our little canvas signs. We got a guy in our church that's got equipment. We'll get no bill for that. He's out there on his backhoe, and I went out there, and it's got the, the footers are deep, four foot, five foot deep, probably to get down there. And the sign's going to have a nice sweeping brick area with posts and stuff, and it's going to be very attractive and, and nice. And I've run a backhoe a little bit, but I stood there and I wondered, how in the world did he dig that with a curve in it? You know what? He just did what he does. Backhoe man knows how to do that. You know, backhoe man, he might not have been up here teaching fifth grade boys Sunday school, but backhoe man was running his backhoe. What do you do? What do you have? If you don't like to teach, don't teach. If you love kids, work at camp. If you know how to run a broom, you know how to run a shovel, get with it. You know how to write checks? Definitely get with that one. You see, just say, Lord, that I would be your faithful doulos. And then go do what you do. Do what you like to do. And then guess what? The Lord will begin to channel you, and he will turn you, and you'll just start doing what you want to do, and then one day somebody, a phone call will come, or an opportunity will be in the bulletin, or your neighbor will have a need, and all of a sudden, your mindset is, the Lord has opened up all these new opportunities for me. I babysit, man, for Jesus. All of a sudden, I'm really helping people. You know? Whatever it is you do, pray about it, yield to the Lord, and then just do what you do. I said that was it, and you knew it didn't mean anything. (laughs) I want to share a letter I received the other day, and this is it. I opened the mail at my desk and I got a letter from a guy I don't know. And he said, hello, Pastor Marceau. The IFCA office gave me your address. I'm a member of the Independent Fundamental Churches of America headquartered in Michigan. And they have a directory and the guy contacted them to find me. It is my understanding that you are the son of Pastor Eugene Marceau. That's true, he's my dad. Assuming this is correct... I would like to know about him. 
I was saved in the 1950s under his ministry at the Portage Community Bible Church in Portage, Indiana. In fact, my whole family was saved under his ministry, and we went to Crescent Lake Bible Camp together. I recall that you at that time had two sisters. Well, I have two sisters, but not at that time. That was my older brother. I wasn't born yet. And he wanted to know whatever happened to my dad after he left that church. You know, I don't know if my dad knows all about that. My dad never pastored a church on Sunday morning. My dad was a pastor for 45 years, and most Sunday mornings he preached to somewhere between 60 and 80 people, except for his first ministry, which was this church, which got up to about 250 people in seven years. They built a new building, and then things went kaput for him in leadership, and he ended up leaving, and it was very disappointing. And then, how many years is this? Fifty years later, a guy writes me and says, would you tell me about your dad? I got saved because of him. And my whole family got saved because of him. And do you know what I remember? Do you know why you have camps out here? Because Eugene took kids to camp. You hear him say? He took us to Crescent Lake Bible Camp. And I can remember being a, quite a little boy and under, under floodlights at night, building a huge plywood box for a top carrier on our 1950-something Chevrolet station wagon so that we could put it on top because my dad had too many kids for in the station wagon to hold the luggage, and he had to build a plywood top carrier, and he roped it down with ropes and drove up to northern Wisconsin from Chicago to take people to Bible camp. You know what my dad was doing? Yeah, you see, he was a pastor. A lot of pastors don't take kids to Bible camp. He was just doing what he does. My dad loved camp. I don't know if my dad knows about this. He will someday in heaven. But he did it because he was faithful in ministry. He didn't always have encouraging ministries. He just never quit. He never quit. Won't you love to be in heaven someday? And somebody say, hey, hey, aren't you? And didn't you? And because of that, I'm here. But more than that, don't you want to be walking down the street one day and the Lord said, hey, you did good. You were faithful. You were a great doulos. You can do it. Quit looking in the rearview mirror and let's move forward, right? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our complacency and the ease with which we follow the flesh and ignore the spirit and conform to the world. And Lord, we do want to be found faithful and we do need reminders like this. And here it is, the end of another year already and perhaps we've lived well below our capacities. And so challenge us, convict us where there's sin, where there's misdirection, help us to focus Help us to realize our greatest resource and the steward, uh, stewardship responsibility is greatest in the areas of your great gospel and that we're holders of the truth and that you've left on a long journey, but you're coming back. Help us to embrace our identity as servants. Help Fellowship Bible Church to be the church you want us to be in 2009. And may we see for the gospel of Jesus Christ great things happen. 
And may someday we hear, well done, good and faithful church. Help us to commit to these things and to be serious. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.